1: Listeners and welcome to episode number forty six of the Glenn Butler Podcast Our Spectacular. I am Glenn Butler, and it is the summertime fun time stranger things episode. We are at the summertime fun time season of Stranger Things and we need to get into it. As always with our Stranger Things episodes, I am joined by my dear, dear friend Alana Kelly. Alana, how many children are you friends with?
2: How many children am I friends with? That's great. I'm at least friends with my
1: own children. I have two. That's very, very important. I'm happy for you.
2: Uh, yeah, I would say that we're friends. I'm friends with at least one child that I know through church, but I think that's about it. Yeah, Steve definitely has an abnormally high number of child friends.
1: <laughs> uh, that that was, they really leaned into that. Just so the listeners know, we are going to be skipping our traditional non-spoiler section the the whole season is up on Netflix, and you've had a little while to watch it. We had enough time for us to watch it, at least. So we are going to go right into talking about the entire season. Alana, how do you feel about how this season extended the concept of the show? Do you think it did extend the concept, or do you think it kind of kept more to uh, well-tread ground?
2: Oh yeah, great question. I think it is not really adding that many new elements or new sources of tension. They are offering some different narratives, like the the whole like the it's the Russians part um, is new, but they're still talking about the same essential essential problem, which is that there is a there's a, a sentient uh, creature that is coming from an alternate world and like comes through a gate um, and terrorizes humans. And in, the, in this series, series three, the, the Russians are trying to reopen it after Eleven went through so much turmoil to close it at the end of series two. But yeah, like the fact that the creature is sentient, uh, we already knew about the fact that it can take people over and possess people. We already knew that, that it takes different forms, that there's like a maximal version of it. And then there's like little deputies of it. Uh, we, we knew that as well. They added some stuff about the mechanism by which the creature grows, which we can get into a little bit more. There's some more detail about it, but still, the the, the the essentials and mechanics I think are the same, and also the structure of it, where they're in different groups that separate and come together and separate in different ways, just narratively. So like that's how they separate the story arcs and like braid them together and take them apart. It definitely feels like another series of Stranger Things. Like they set that up in seasons one and two. Um, So, yeah, I think it's basically the same stuff, but in that summer movie kind of way where where like you kind of know what you're going to get and you want to get it. Yeah. So that's where I am at with it.
1: One of the things that I was a little concerned about going into this season was the question of whether they would just straightforwardly redo the formula from the first two seasons Um, because uh, I I think it worked for the second season, but you've got to think it would get old eventually, right? Yeah, I, I I think using the flayed, the people who are like the minions of of the mind flayer, a little more than just the singular big threat itself throughout the mm-hmm. season. I think that really added a little variation and allowed them to do some different things, still staying within the same mood and 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 a lot of the same characters, even because obviously one of the first things that happened in this season is poor poor Billy.
2: Poor Billy, yeah. But I liked that use of him. Billy is a real
1: loud and scary
2: antagonist in season two. Real scary, actually. Scared me more than the Mind flare, honestly, because I feel like I could meet a Billy in real life, but not necessarily a Mind flare. We see Billy again right away in in episode one he's doing his Billy thing. Uh, he's a lifeguard at the pool. So, and uh, all the, all the mommies really like looking at him and can't wait for his shift to start. And like, you know, he's got sort of that 80s beauty. He's very tan and he has long, long hair with bleach in it. He's always wears like a really nicely fitted pair of pants kind of thing, like peak 80s eye candy kind of situation and he seems like a young adult like he's of age I think like he's you know maybe like 19 or 20 like I think he was a senior in high school in season two maybe yes I like to think he's of age because he like one thing that happens to him in the in the or that he does in episode one is like loudly proposition Mrs. Wheeler But, yeah, poor Billy is on the way to this date, and he's actually, like, charmingly kind of nervous about it. He's, like, he's practicing what he's going to say to Mrs. Wheeler in a way that I found kind of charming against my will because I still was pretty anti-Billy from Series 2. But, yeah, he has the misfortune of having a car accident near the locus of um, the Mind Flayer trying to reassemble a body. And he gets into trouble right away and becomes a category of person that is called the Slade
1: in this series. I I think him, like, practicing what he was going to say to Mrs. Wheeler on the way to meeting her, I think that was a little bit of an effort to try to emphasize that he's still somewhat of a child. I mean, he may Mm -hmm. be, like, technically of of age and everything, but... He's still not exactly the the ladies man that he plays at the pool, you know. Yeah, you know th- there are some important ways in which he's still a child, and then he's taken over by the Mind Flayer. So, so it kind of emphasizes the one respect in which he would be a little more relatable and a little more sympathetic, especially coming off his portrayal in season two and the very end of season two, when when we started to get you know some some sympathy for him before he becomes this avatar of of the big bad for this year.
2: And then I also think looking back on the content of the whole season that they are foreshadowing a little bit that Billy has some mom stuff. We learned that Billy was very close to his mom and he seems to have lost his mom, although they don't fully articulate it. And he's left with the father character that we met in season two and who we hear from very briefly in this season, who's very uh, hostile and abusive, uh, verbally abusive, at least, and also physically abusive. Actually, we did see that in season two and that child, Billy loved his mom, wanted her back, and maybe that's why he looks to older women and, like, why it was actually charged for him. Like, it wasn't just a conquest thing. Like, he seemed to have been more emotionally involved than he projects to the mommies. Like, the stakes seemed higher for him personally when he's in the car rehearsing, and I think it's because he has some unprocessed mom stuff.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And his whole flashback uh, with Mm -hmm. his mother on the beach and then with his father meeting Maxine and everything really emphasizes the cycle of abuse and the cycle of violence yes. that he's stuck into, that we saw a little bit in Season 2, and which is really used through his flaying as as sort of a metaphor for the Mind Flayer and, and, and in general, the, the upside-down kind of continually encroaching on the world of the show. Due to the nature of television production, it is cyclical, And it's something that everyone has to be constantly on the lookout for and constantly vigilant about Mm -hmm. uh, in the same way as the cycle of abuse that that Billy is stuck in with his father and that he visits on Maxine and that, you know, screws everything up for everyone.
2: Yeah, and makes makes him maybe a little bit vulnerable. And then that same thing sets the foundation for Eleven to try to be able to to, to reach him in spite of his being possessed, which honestly I think was not quite fully earned and was maybe not my favorite story choice. Um in the finale she like like he he he's he's about to like basically feed her to the mind flayer and like she puts his hand on him and talks gently about this memory that she was able to see through her her superpower that she has and he's like affected and like sort of a music soothes the savage beast kind of a kind of an idea. I appreciated the acting from both of them, but it was not my favorite writing choice.
1: It's kind of the the power of love ending, except sure. tra- yeah. transplanted that's onto better. someone that he doesn't have a pre-existing relationship with. I mean, it would be if that had been Max. <laughs> then that the, the, I, I I think I, I think your objection would only be more apt because mm-hmm. that would be stereotypical and kind of treacly. Oh, that's true. Although maybe maybe it's more unearned since it's someone that he has no relationship with, really. it's, It's odd. I think that's exactly it. Like, why does she have the info? We know that. We saw why she has
2: it. But, like, why did it work like that? unclear and like i'm trying to recall i feel like joyce attempted to call will back in a similar way and it failed actually they were only able to excise the mind flare from will with heat and like torture and like not this emotional thing so i feel like they sort of changed direction there it wasn't quite right but i i I only did see the content of series three once and it was or series two once and it was last year but i'm but i'm pretty sure i'm pretty sure like I'm pretty sure that that sort of gentle calling did not work with Will. So it's kind of like why does it suddenly work with Billy that doesn't but doesn't necessarily connect for me.
1: I don't know, the, just the the way my mind works, I I always, like, patch around anything that, that people call out as plot holes. I mean, if you really want to get into it, I mean, the effect could have been weakened when they did trap him in the sauna and try to get it out with heat, and then, you know, there may have been a vulnerability there if you want to just start assuming things about the plot.
2: Oh, sure, yeah, if you want to make it tighter through that. And I did, I, I did think the sauna test episode was one of the strongest of this series. I did like that one a
1: lot. Oh, yeah, totally. One of the things that Stranger Things really does very well, and one of the things that it leans on because of that, is the kids plotting against people that they don't have power over because they don't have power over anyone other than each other in some ways sometimes and can't physically overpower but by cleverness and by surprise you know they they, they always have these schemes and sometimes by relying on 11 superpowers yeah you know i i suppose you know she actually does have power over people at times shall we shall we get into 11 actually our our dear dear sci-fi daughter Yes, would
2: love to. Yeah, so I, I still really appreciate the performance from Millie Bobby Brown. She's she's really great. It's interesting. I like what she's doing with her ability to speak because she still sounds a little bit stilted. Vocabulary is still a little bit limited because she's trying to catch up from being, being essentially mute for 10 years or so. But I do see see how like we continue to see her brilliant brain because she's like made so so much progress so quickly, but still it's there that she's ever so slightly different, even when her powers are not on display. I wasn't so in there's many, many, many hetero pairings that are in this show and probably too many and I don't feel a lot of chemistry between her and Mike. I felt it more when they were not trying to be boyfriend or girlfriend. Maybe that's just the power of UST, I don't know. But, like, Mike trying to be a boyfriend was pretty awkward, and that forced some awkwardness out of her, too. But I did really like the arc where she and Max were able to be friends. They kind of, they did take pains to turn it. Because, like, there's a moment when we meet, and I think when Max shows up in this series... She she like loses control of her skateboard and Eleven catches it and there's like this one tense moment because when we saw them in series two they were Eleven was projecting hostility toward Max for being so close to the boys. Oh my God,
1: I forgot about that. I'm sorry. Okay.
2: Yeah, and it was very forced in series two and my least favorite element I think because I was trying to make a love triangle where there wasn't one. Uh, and then they, and I'm glad they chose to pivot away from that and do something else because they actually are wonderful friends. Like I love seeing their friendship on screen, uh, even though they're not really passing the Bechdel test because they spend so much time talking about boys. But like.
1: I was thinking. I was thinking about that. I I loved their their little uh, like gal pal subplot, mm-hmm. and I, I was thinking around the time that they uh, went to the mall and did the whole fashion montage. Is this the first time that the show is going to pass the Bechdel test? Because previously, the on- the only women in the show were Eleven and people's mothers. Joyce, obviously, and I thought maybe was there something with Joyce and Eleven in season one that might have technically done it but it's not a particular skill that the show has. No, it's not. Although I did appreciate
2: that many of the new characters are women. Yes. Plenty were dudes, too, but like, um, there are more women to talk about now. But uh, But I also wasn't as mad because... Girls of that age do in fact talk about boys. That's that's uh, hashtag confirmed. I was I was of that age and that was what we wanted to talk about pretty much nonstop. Um, And then like why are Max and Lucas a couple like they're not though like that was just that was a weird afterthought that was unnecessary. What other things I liked about Eleven? Oh, I did like her wardrobe choices because they're
1: wonderfully 80s. Oh my god, yes. They're she, so got, good. she got her look so right.
2: Yeah, and like she has this half ponytail with a scrunchie, which is a look that I myself wore at that age, except that it was like 93 instead of 85, but like same, same flavor. And then I love that that outfit that they uh, chose together in the finale, there's this extremely tense moment in the fight with the Flayer where he the Flayer knocks down a mannequin that's wearing the outfit, and for a half second it seems like he has struck her. That was awesome, and that was set up by the outfit, which I really I, I liked that moment. And yeah, so the other thing going on with Eleven, uh, the main thing is her relationship with Hopper, and I like seeing Hopper settled back into being a father, although... Just as a human being in 2019, I'm kind of over the hyper-protective paternalism guarding the daughter's sexuality thing. I kind of wish that he was more advanced, but then, like, the other argument there is that it's set in 1985, so, sure. And they, they do act the shit out of their dynamic.
1: Yes, they, yes, the actors are are fine. I, uh, oh man, I found Hopper to be entirely too scream-shouty. Like, the vast majority of his lines were delivered in the same kind of yell-threatening tone, except when he was talking to Joyce. Well, except some scenes where he was talking to Joyce, because sometimes he was yell-threatening her too. Talk
2: about Hopper next, but yeah, let's stay on 11.
1: Yes, I agree about the slight awkwardness between 11 and Mike. That might just be an effort to show how kids are awkward, and kids are incredibly awkward. Super
2: awkward. And that's true. That's true. It's not like it's not like uh, 11 and 12 year old and 13 year old kids are amazing at being couples. They're not. And like their kissing was also very true to what kissing is like at that age, which I appreciated, you know, really hesitant, obviously novice, like just I, I appreciated that it was it read as sweet, which I think was the point. And then there was a part of me that was very happy for Eleven to have the relationship, even though I didn't really enjoy watching it, if that makes any sense. I liked, I liked that she had it because she spent so much of her life without any love or affection at all. And now she has two sources. She has Hopper's paternal flavor of love, and she has this sort of crush, excitement relationship with Mike.
1: Both of which let her down at times during the course of the, of the season. You know, when, when Hopper is too protective and drives her away, uh, as is normal for him in his, in his life. Yeah,
2: I think I'm an overcorrector, our friend Hopper.
1: Yes. And then, of course, with the whole scene with Lucas and Mike talking about how men are from Mars and women are from Venus.
2: Yeah, that was also awkward. And and I was not a I was not a an adolescent boy, so maybe that was maybe that is something that boys talk about, but it, it felt a little weird, but maybe it's like sort of a peacocking thing that boys do where we're gonna like talk about how emotional and crazy women are. Like I, I don't know. I, I guess I've never I've never been in the room because I was a little girl, not a little boy, but yeah, like that as a source of conflict was also like kind of bulky and like not nuanced.
1: You know, like weird. I don't. It wasn't it wasn't my
2: favorite. It was
1: very, very stereotypical.
2: Sure. Yeah. That. Yes. Real tropey.
1: And you know how I feel about stereotypical hetero nonsense in my shows.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh my god. There was so. There was really a lot. Like almost to the point where I maybe wasn't interested because it was just fucking everywhere. Just to like to some some more some more thoughts about. 11. I like a couple of things that they did toward the end where she has, she has such power, but it actually seems a little bit different. And I actually, I like the discussion. There's, there's actually a wonderful moment that was very feminist in nature where, where Max is, Letting them all know that 11 is an expert on 11 on 11's ability, which is like just an important reflection on what it what it is to be a person and have autonomy over yourself like they that that was a nice just brief thing that they touched on. I think it's episode six or episode seven. Mike trying to get 11 not to try things is not quite right it's a benevolent flavor of sexism actually and they, they and they're not they're not doing the uh, um, you know sociology 101
1: preaching but it's it's in there as content for you to pick up if you want to which i liked the whole discussion about how 11 is an expert on what 11 can do is is very Feminism 101, in, in a way that's welcome. Yes. And I do appreciate that Mike learned from that and kind of stopped trying to hang on to her in a proprietary way after that.
2: Yes, and it helped feed his heart, so very heartfelt
1: sort of apology and reconnection
2: with her um, after she's been injured. And uh, he's, he's talking about, you know, what caused him to, to act uh, like such a jerk, essentially, and so how he was feeling jealous. And and I liked that he like did some processing, like did some owning of emotions. Um, that's a nice model for boys to see. Like, what do you do when you fuck up in your relationship? How do you become accountable to your to your partner? I, that that was actually nicely handled. I thought that was one of my the, an aspect of their relationship that I did appreciate. And yeah, kind of connecting to, to, to finishing up the arc for Eleven, um, I do like the idea that they have explored what it's like when she runs out of power because she gets the bite and so she has she has a piece of the flare in her body briefly and then it seems like her power is changed and then she gets very tired from the fight and can't, and can't do what she wants and then later she's trying to generate power after everything has calmed down and she still actually cannot. So it's kind of like, is she done being super powerful now? Did having the flare in her body kill off her power? It's it's not clear. It's still, it's open season for season four. Mike tells her it'll come back. I wonder if she's going to grow out of it, if she's going to pubes out of it. But I like that she was not necessarily panicked about not being able to call the bear off the shelf. She like tries to do it and she can't do it. And Mike brings it down for her and she hangs on to it and says, thank you. Like she doesn't. She doesn't seem as distressed about the loss of power as I was expecting. I would have thought that would cause a little bit of an identity crisis or a fear. But she, yeah, she seems to be used to not having it for at this point several months because that part of the story is three months after the big fight. I I didn't expect it, so I I appreciated that. It's very nice acting from her throughout.
1: I I think the choice to depower her at the end was interesting In part because everyone else had to kind of improvise and make do without her powers. And because I had thought that the natural next step for Season 4, or at some point, would be for Eleven to be truly corrupted by one of these entities. And then suddenly they have to find a way to save her, almost like they tried to save Billy. I think that would be a natural next step or eventual step for the show, but I think it's interesting to go in this direction. I think that would probably become more of a crisis for her when the next big crisis hits in the next season. Like when when the next monster comes or the Russian Demogorgons attack or whatever. Oh shit, are you just still on cooldown? Yeah, or someone else breaks into the mall and tries to open up the rift again. Oh, Jesus, yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you want to talk about symbolism, I mean, the first two seasons were rife with with the symbolism of of this world where everything is the same but also wrong encroaching on small-town America. Mm -hmm. But if you want to slather on some layers of symbolism, okay, you put a mall on top of it, you put the Cold War in it.
2: Yeah, you know what? The the like, uh oh, it's the Russians thing. I think that took the place like that that energy and that anxiety in the story took the place of seeing more visuals of the Upside Down. Like we don't actually see much of the Upside Down at all. And like when Billy is first taken in episode one, we see him again at the start of episode two when he when he's looking at uh, Bizarro Billy, doppelganger Billy. And it, w- it seems like there's a, like, I thought that was the upside down, but then we never, re- we don't come back there. Instead, we see the bodies, but they're clearly in the chemical shed where the flare is, like, gathering its body together. So, like, that's not really the upside down. They kind of abandoned the construct of the upside down. And I really, I actually really missed it because I really loved the visual of Bizarro everything. I loved the weird ash slash sloughed skin or whatever the floating material is that's in the upside down. It's so creepy. Like, they didn't use that angle of the story as much as they did, especially in season one. Season one is when we had it the most, where the upside down was, like, everywhere, and you could fall into it from anywhere. Like, they they didn't use that stuff. Like, they had built that part of the world, and then they they kind of abandoned it. The only time we see the upside down is just the gate, which clearly connects to the upside down. Like, you you can see some of the the ash or the snow or whatever it is, near the gate. But they kind of left that alone, and I missed it.
1: I think they were kind of trading on the uh, sense of dread we have about the Upside Down carried over from the first two seasons. Oh, yeah, that's probably true. They were expecting us to have that invested in every scene where they showed the gate and and also a lot more of the creeping horror the the sense that something is wrong in in capital letters uh, yeah. was accomplished much more this season by the whole pod people subplot uh, than, than the visuals of the Upside Down. So every, every time they showed like Mrs. Driscoll eating fertilizer or, or things like that, uh, th- I, I think that was carrying a lot more of, of the load of showing visually how things are not right uh, than outright going back to the Upside Down.
2: That's an excellent point, and I think I think you're right. Your your point's better than mine about this one. It it is the pod people concept that was taking the place of that, and the, and it what it was used well. The another thing I want to touch on is the more prominent horror aesthetic in this series compared to the previous two. Horror is not my favorite genre, so I was actually not feeling it. it's more obviously in the horror genre, like the creatures more gross now than it was. And the way it's collecting its body is super disgusting, and then there's quite a bit of body horror, like Stranger Things series one. I could almost want to watch with, I would say, a grade school child, like a, a child who's this, the same age as the characters. I would feel comfortable with that, but that's not true anymore because the the flare and the violence um, is too much. Like so, yeah, the flare is too gross, and also the fights that Hopper has are way too violent. For me to be comfortable watching with kids, which is too bad, because, like, series one has, like, the Goonies energy, the E.T. energy, like, still has a bit of a family flavor, although there are some legit scary moments, um, and I no longer feel that it is family-oriented.
1: Oh, no, totally. They're, I think that's one of the things that they're changing as the kids, both the actors and the characters, are getting older. I yeah. think I think that gives the creators of the show more of a feeling of of freedom as far as horror elements and and those sort of visceral fight scenes that they're doing with Hopper now.
2: Mm-hmm. I, I, yeah, I, w- I wish that were not so. But I knew I knew it was changing because the way that um, the way Bob dies at the end of series two was very violent and graphic. So I I kind of knew that since they went there, it was likely they were going to go there again, and they and they did. And it's just like. It's so, certain parts of it are very, like, just actually gross, <laughs> gross like, revol- revolting, and some of it is just too much, too much violence. Like, the, the Hopper has a number of very violent fights with this um,
1: super-troped-out Russian heavy. With, with the Terminator, yeah.
2: Yes. He, he actually, that actor looks a lot like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Like, he looks a lot
1: like terminator era arnold schwarzenegger it's pretty funny actually well they gave they gave him the the haircut yeah (laughs) they did they were not ambiguous about it Mm -mm. by the way when they showed not only the flashback of, of bob being gruesomely killed but also the flashback of of bob with joyce was i the only one who thought that they might like go to a gate or find one of the pod people or whatever and and have it be Bob. Oh no, I thought Bob was super dead. Oh, I know, I know, Bob is super dead, but that's not necessarily an impediment here. I guess since they actually showed Sean Astin, I briefly had the thought, you know, is he actually going to be in the show in some capacity?
2: Yeah, and I did love seeing him, and it was it was a nice grief moment, and they I did like how they remembered him because he was a super important part of series two and i'm glad joyce wasn't over him and it it might be a good time to take the break and then we can come back and talk about hopper and joyce because i have feelings
1: about that oh yes absolutely feelings and thoughts aplenty listeners we will be right back to talk more about hopper and joyce and all of your favorites right after this
0: Emotional consideration paid for by the following. Place Nations, JT Rosero and Chad Campbell here. We want to let you know that we have over two dozen podcasts available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and PlaceVenation.com. We now offer them to you on two great feeds. On the Place Wrestling feed, we dive into topics running go. the gamut from today's WWE to the glory days of yesteryear and the ins and outs of the territory days. In addition to our full length shows, we also deliver to you special pod blasts on topics old and new. The Place to Be Nation pop feed is a veritable treasure trove of great content, offering tremendous shows covering the land of movies, television, life, comics, and sports. Brought to you by the most knowledgeable and insightful folks in the podcast world. You can find all of these current shows, plus archives of our previous podcasts from over the past eight years, as well by subscribing to our feeds on iTunes. And while there, be sure to rate and leave feedback as well. All of these shows, plus others available at PlaySumation.com, where we cover pro wrestling, sports, movies, comics, plus in-depth stretch projects and more. Be sure to support our site by using www.PlaySumation.com forward slash Amazon while doing your online shopping. And be sure to join us at our forum at Bigelow34.ProBoards.com for all sorts of wrestling, sports, and pop culture discussion each and every day where you can make your voice heard. We also want to thank our friends at Bonehead's Wing Bar, ProWrestlingOnly.com, and TheHistoryOfWrestling.com. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr as well. PlayStation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world.
1: We've always got something new going on on the Place to Be Nation podcast feeds. Over at the Place to Be Nation Pop feed, the sarcastic four continue their look at 1971 with the second of a three-part episode of Marvel Age. On the 30th episode of Songs with Friends, Steve and Kelly pay tribute to 1994. The hard-traveling fanboys continue Spider-Man Month with their review of the latest MCU film, Spider-Man: Far From Home. DC4U continues its celebration of Superman with a look at the classic Alan moore Kurt Swan story, Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow? Geek and Sassy welcomes Tim Cable to recap Season 2 of Stranger Things. Join Glenn and Scott to run down all the candidates in the coming presidential election in a new spectacular. That's the last episode of this show! On a new episode of the NBA team, Adam Murray and Andrew Reich reflect on what has been quite a week in the land of the NBA. Meanwhile, the greatest song of the 80s tournament continues. You can find it on Facebook or the Place to Be Nation Twitter. Over on the Place to Be Nation wrestling feed, in the 11th episode of Row 1, Seat 1, Ben chats Evolve, ROH, and more with indie star Kurt Stallion. On episode number 130 of the main event, Scott, Nate, and Steve are joined by Sheriff Pete Schermacher to talk the G1 Climax, AEW, Impact, Evolve, and much more. JT and Chad open up the 1996 pay-per-view year with a look at the Royal Rumble on the latest Wrestling Warzone. Tim, Jenny, and Greg are back with a brand new Talkin' WCW as they look at WarGames. Over at PlayStubeNation.com, our tribute to the year 1994 is off and running, with pieces on the Best Picture nominees at the Oscars, the 1994 World Cup, and more. Let's get back into the show. Let's get back into Stranger Things. alana let's do it by talking about our dear, dear mother of all viewers, Joyce Byers. Yeah. So,
2: I'm I've been team Joyce since the middle of season 1. I really appreciate her and how she's depicted on screen and her mothering instincts what i did not enjoy for series 3 is that they made hopper and joyce try to get together and i that really bothered me cuz it's so obvious and one thing i really specifically appreciated about series 2 is that they were friends and i didn't like who hopper was in his pursuit of her Her responses to him I actually liked. Like I was still into how she was dealing with Hopper, but like it forced their relationship into a weird place. I think they successfully came back from it, but then they included that one of the ways they were considering coming back into a peaceful place or a strong relationship was her agreeing to date him. Yeah, I wish that was not in the show.
1: Their friendship from the first two seasons did kind of fall victim to the show's maniacal pursuit of pairing everyone up. Hair everybody up. Yeah, like this show will not let anyone be alone. It's wild. I just love Joyce's energy so much. Mhm. Like she literally sees a few magnets fall down and the next time we see her she's giving herself an education in electromagnetism. It it is amazing.
2: That big stack of books is hilarious. I it was great and then like Yeah, she misses the date because she lost track of time because she was talking to the the science-slash-AV club person that we met from season one. That was such a great moment. And, like, I also like that because losing track of time over a nerdery thing is more traditionally masculine behavior. And I liked seeing her do it. And I just like that she does she does what is on her mind. Like, she doesn't really dither about stuff at all she's very driven and focused and even though she gets like she gets a lot of blowback from people about her weird ideas like she doesn't care like it never stops her yeah she's really like it or lump it but in in still a gentle way like her her baseline personality is still very gentle so
1: it's a it's it's a nice character i like it a lot i like seeing it I just think she's amazing. I agree that she does kind of fall victim to the pairing-up drive, and that that does kind of soften the edges of the character a little bit. Yeah. What Joyce has been defined by previously was a single-minded drive to save her kids. Yes. And that kind of, it adds another dimension, sure, but it's, again, a pretty stereotypical one. I saw I saw a comment. I only read I only read one one
2: uh, reflection piece about Series Three, but they said that Winona is a bit underutilized. And I actually I I disagree. I think I think they actually do give her a lot to do, and especially now that now that she she has the kids back and she's she's on to solving different problems. But I think I think they gave her a lot of different things to do. But she does not act sexy or romantic toward Hopper. And I was wondering if the comment was that we were not seeing romantic or sexy acting from Winona, who has been used in that capacity before in her career. So I was wondering if they were like wishing that she were a sexier character, because she, they do not play her that way, and I appreciate it. And the sole thing I appreciate about Hopper's interest in her is that he's he seems interested even though she's not overtly sexy in any way. I like that one thing and nothing else about it. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I'm trying to think of what that would even look like. Real weird is what it would look like, so I'm glad they don't. <laughs> yeah, like, I'm trying to imagine Joyce, like, getting dressed up for a date now, you know, like, in a nice dress and a necklace or something. Yeah, like, if she really was gonna go on that date with Hopper. Yeah, just to really femme it up.
2: Yeah, and, like, I see her showing up at that date with Hopper, like, in a t-shirt with wide leg pants, because that's what she wears. <laughs> yeah, basically. So interesting. And it also it also makes her an interesting foil for Mrs. Wheeler, who is very feminine and who is playing really a pretty thankless milf role uh, in this series. But she's still that actress is actually also very, very skilled. And she added a lot to her performance as well gave it more depth than was on the page
1: so i'm i'm glad that she got something to do other than the uh plot line where she was flirting with billy i'm I'm glad that she got the opportunity to have that scene with nancy after she's fired from the newspaper
2: yes that was a great scene
1: exactly where, where she's where she's giving her some confidence and really getting her back out and back into the plot of the show. I, I, I'm I'm really glad that she got that moment to be more of a parent than a MILF.
2: Yes. And also I really like that comment. This was actually another uh another nice nod to sort of feminist uh, messaging, which is her naming that that it is very difficult to be out in the world and she she doesn't say it's it's difficult to be out in the world as a woman, but like that that's what she's talking about clearly to me. And you can also kind of read in her in her face in her expression, her performance in that moment that she's kind of like looking at her own responses to the demands of womanhood, you know, like she her sort of hyper feminism is a way to combat the hostility of the world. Cause you're like, you've, you've conformed to, to such a degree that you take pressure off yourself, but you also lose yourself a little bit. So she's like kind of offering like, Nancy, like, looking at my journey, like I, like, I would understand if you do not emulate me, if you do something else. And, like, he she kind of connects that to, to her naming that Nancy is very, has a very strong character, very strong personality. Like, maybe you, Nancy, will have more choices than I did, and I'm, like, I'm not going to begrudge you those choices. There was a lot in that conversation.
1: Yes. That conversation added a lot more maturity for that character. It did. And for Nancy, too. I hope I'm not like reading too much into it, but the impression that I get from that is that Mrs. Wheeler is a person who absolutely loves her children, absolutely loves her husband, but understands the social restrictions that were placed on her.
2: Yeah, you're right there with it. Sort of the ro- the role of socialization and culture. Like it, it, to me, like it was just it was such a brief It was a fairly brief conversation, but it was like I I really appreciated that also as a and I I wish I wish my own mom actually had been able to talk to me more about the demands of society and like whether or not we want to listen to them when I was that age or even younger than Nancy is, because I think Nancy is Nancy is an adult, too, at this point. But just naming that it is freaking rough to try to find your place when your options appear to be limited the way we have culturally limited the options of women and it's better now than it was then and it was better than than it was in the 50s and it was better then than it is in the
1: 30s like etc cetera, etc cetera, but we're still not there exactly yes as shown prodigiously in nancy's storyline with the newspaper misogynists yeah, one of the things that this show does is present forms of abuse or forms of evil that then get subsumed and and absorbed into the monster, whatever that monster is in in whatever season of the show. I think it's notable how after the newspaper misogynists are absorbed by the mind flare and become pod people how the way they behave doesn't really change that much right i think in a way the show is kind of underlining how everyday cruelties and and the way that we mistreat people day to day is part of a larger menace if that makes sense <laughs> It does. It's
2: this it's the surface of a deeper thing. Yeah. I was worried in the first two episodes that I just wasn't into the writing anymore, but then there were actually good writing moments. But there were there were there were more weaker ones too. Like I felt like the writing didn't wreck it, but there were more weaknesses in it, more reliance on tropes, more choices that I thought were too obvious this series than in previous ones. I still think the strongest one was season 1 and I'm apparently backwards from the opinion of the person I was reading last night who thinks that the three was the best ba- like the th- third season was the best of the three I, I don't agree but yeah it's interesting and it makes it more than only a blockbuster feeling but part of that is the time because we have eight hours and not two to discuss these things and, and situate our characters
1: Let's go back to Hopper for a second, our dear, dear departed Hopper. Yeah. Like I said a few minutes ago, I kind of feel like he was a little monotone for a lot of this season, and as a result of that, the thing that struck me during his monologue at the end, when L is reading the letter that he and Joyce wrote, now Eleven is going to remember Hopper as the guy who wrote that letter, and not the guy who spent the whole season screaming at everyone. Which, seem, which seems a little odd to me.
2: I was okay with it that the letter part it didn't it didn't seem false to me because like they showed his process of writing it like he well he's pacing and it's like taking him a while to find the right words and like it can be it can be really hard to get in touch with the truth when you have so much expectation put on you like got he sort of backed into this new father role like he had had a daughter lost that daughter was putting it all on the line again taking charge of 11 and then like he could feel he was mess- he was making some mistakes and stuff. like it did it, it's it felt genuine that a man especially a man who's who needs to be so outwardly masculine as the chief of police like the like masculinity is coded as suppression of emotion so like the idea that he would only be soft like in this like sort of excruciating process of spitting the words out into the letter That rang true for me, and I also really liked the content of the letter itself. I thought it was pretty strong stuff. But, like, the rest of Hopper in this series, yeah, I thought there were some weird false notes. I really did not like how forced the jealousy of the AV teacher was. Like, that was completely uncalled for. He was quite cruel to Joyce about it for no reason. Like, yes, it's obnoxious to be stood up, but why did she stand him up? Because she was Joyce being Joyce. And she accepted the date, although he did kind of push it down her throat a little bit, honestly. And, like, she was still grieving Bob. Like, it just, like, him hanging it all on the AV teacher was just, it was so unpleasant to watch. I wanted more or something different than that.
1: It is, it's another thing that's very stereotypical, right? When anyone who knows Joyce Byers should know that when she says she was late for something because she was talking about science, she was actually talking about science.
2: Yes. So there was there was that that sort of story choice to, like, force a love triangle with the AV teacher. Really, Duffer Brothers? Really? Because that was their fault. I think that was in episode two, which they wrote. Um, (laughs) Not into that. He was so he was Hopper was very violent in this series. Part of it is uh, Terminator being after him, but he was he was real violent to to the mayor as well. Like it just it was just violent, like lots of injuries, like lots of throwing punches. Like it was just a lot too much for me.
1: It might strain credulity a little to to have the police chief beat the crap out of the mayor in the middle of the season, and then nothing happens to him,
2: yeah, although it did kind of it, it was sort of funny when Joyce was like, "Well, who are you going to call though like I, I appreciated that joke um when she's like in the outer office
1: with the mayor's secretary. Also, I really like that they cast
2: Carrie Elwes for that role.
1: Carrie Elwes was very good as as the biggest creep in town.
2: Yeah, he's so good at being slimy, and I just like that they're like sort of collecting people whose heyday was the '80s to like tease us with. I I appreciated that a lot because that that definitely includes Winona Ryder It includes Sean Astin. Like, it's just it's a it feels like an Easter egg a little bit. He was good, and and like the storyline with the Russians, like it it was what it needed to be. Sorry, I'm bouncing. We were supposed to stay on Hopper. Are we Are we good?
1: Are we good on Hopper? I did see someone point out on Twitter that uh, Hopper was part of this season's most ridiculous sci-fi concept. A cop who doesn't want to break up a protest.
2: Lol. Well, yeah. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Uh, yeah, that was a little bit backwards from... The way it works now. Oh, and I did like just to just to sort of pay tribute and pour one out for the character. I really did love that moment when Joyce is trying to do the keys together and they have that. That shared moment where she is going to go ahead and do it and she does it in a blazing moment of courage. And I like how we don't actually see Hopper's body disintegrate. We see the disintegration of the other bodies which then lets us know that Hopper's body would have also disintegrated and then it's missing. She can't find him. But I kind of liked not seeing it directly. I thought that was a good non-obvious choice.
1: Yeah, I think it was definitely a good decision uh, to to close on on Hopper with his um, sense of resignation
2: and smile. He fully
1: smiled at her too. Yes, finally.
2: Yeah, right. It took all fucking season, but yeah, she does scary shit on a regular basis, and she her mannerism seems so delicate that that she would not actually be strong, but she does strong shit all the time. Love Joyce, as he said, she was willing to pay the cost, and that, and it was a, it was a high price for her.
1: As, as, far, as far as Joyce goes, she is going to be an incredible mother for Eleven. That is something that I look forward to seeing as a new dynamic on the show, for sure. Yes, me too.
2: Yeah, because we had a beautiful preview in series one when they get eleven in the pool and Joyce is helping her try to find Will. And she's so encouraging and so gentle and the exact opposite of Papa. It was so beautiful, I actually, was moved to tears at the time that I saw it two years ago. It was so gentle, um, but there was a an iron core to it. Like some people would be like so desperate at that point that they would have like pushed much more obviously, been like, oh my god, fine, like, you know, like, adding more pressure to it because the stakes were so high, but she was like, she was a real, a real master parent in that moment, for sure.
1: She was the first adult that Eleven encountered, well, she was one of the first adults that Eleven ever encountered who really understood that she was a child. Yes. I mean, there was the guy at the diner and then Joyce. (laughs) Yes. R.I.P. guy at the diner. Gone but not forgotten. Absolutely. Let's move on to... It feels strange to call them the minor enemies of this season, but I guess they are. Uh, let's Let's move on to the Russian conspiracy. Yeah, I mean, it's nothing Nothing we haven't seen before. I mean, they very explicitly call it out as Red Dawn early in the season.
2: Mm-hmm. I didn't mind it. It didn't feel... Super necessary, like before it was G-Men protecting the Upside On project, and now it's Russians. so sure, I guess. My favorite byproduct of that was for sure Alexei, or Alexei, I'm not actually sure how to say it, but the, the scientist who they kidnap and is then, you know, kill, killed as a traitor, unfortunately. But yeah, I liked, I liked his whole thing with the Murray character, which is brilliantly played by that actor, who's so good at being disagreeable. That whole little vibe between Joyce and Hopper and Alexei and Murray, um, I actually I liked them together. That was fun for me. Yeah, and I like I liked his scientists and I like I liked him trying to do the thing with with the Slurpee, like get me the right Slurpee favor, flavor or else. And then actually, that does lead me to one final thing that I enjoyed about Hopper, which is that Hopper said that Alexei would not actually leave because he couldn't leave. And then it seems like he's wrong, but then actually he's right. I really liked that.
1: That scene was pretty fun because it because it like threatened to subvert itself about three or four times. Yeah, and then just play, and, then, and then just played it straight, exactly like as Hopper said. It, that was deft
2: yeah it was very satisfying, and it also it made room for Hop- Hopper's expertise as a police officer, which were which were more on display in other series um, than they were in this series. So yeah, I liked, I liked that moment. And yeah, that was the other thing. I didn't like, I didn't like seeing Steve beaten as severely as
1: he was. That was another thing that was kind of visceral, the, that whole torture session.
2: Yeah, that was like it was a lot like she's not a kid, but only barely not a kid. And just like any t- time, any time someone is struck when their hands are tied, freaks me the fuck out. It's so horrible. Um, It's not a fair fight. Like, it's just it's just something you would do to cause pain. Like, it just it, it bothers me intensely. So, yeah, was not was not as into that. But, uh, oh, and I guess the other thing that I should credit the Russian story for is that it lets us spend time with Lucas's sister, Erica, because her I was deeply into.
1: She was excellent comic relief, and that actress killed it. There must have been so much positive feedback about that character during season two Mm -hmm. to bring her back in such an expanded role this year, and she kills it.
2: Yeah. Yeah, she's really great. She's really, really funny.
1: I love her moment with
2: Dustin deciding whether who is a nerd and to what degree. That was beautiful. I love Dustin so much. I still love him. He's still my favorite child. But yeah, we'll get to him in a sec, I think.
1: Yeah, Dustin's reading of My Little Pony as the nerd or text is was awesome. a, a thing of glory. That was great.
2: It was beautiful. And she's like, how the hell do you know? And he's like, because I am a nerd. Like, <laughs> yes. hello like diagnosis by uh, familiarity like it was it was great but um i think yeah a natural segue would be talking about robin and steve yes let's uh, so what are, what are your thoughts because robin is the only not straight character that we get assuming that that's what they were trying to say oh
1: it's absolutely what they were trying to say with with robin okay you know what i've been thinking a bit about representation in mass corporate-produced media and how much we should really depend on it or invest in it. If anyone heard uh, uh, our, my episodes with my brother about Star Trek Discovery, it's something I thought about a lot in the context of that show, and I kind of feel like uh, corporate-produced mass media is a bad place to really, really invest in personal representation capitalism right. there's no ethical consumption under capitalism indeed, but still, it's better on the part of the content creators to do it than not to do it
2: yes, i I feel that way too, and I'm actually pretty free of marginalization other than other than being a a, a woman and i and I like to read critique from people who have more marginalizations than I do, but it, it's it does seem like you know kind of like. Any step toward the light, uh, especially in, like, a piece of art like this that's massively consumed, is appreciated, assuming it is not grossly mishandled. And I don't feel that this was grossly mishandled.
1: What do you think about it? Well, she's not she's not an overworn, outdated stereotype. Mm-hmm. She's, she's not a stereotypical lesbian, basically. She's not super butch. She's not, you know, super, super femme. Mm-hmm. So I think that's I think that's a very positive thing about her characterization. Yeah. I'm not sure how much of that was invested into her character for the sake of the uh fake out where she's Yeah. getting where where she looks like she's getting together with Steve and Steve thinks they're going to get together and then it's subverted at the last moment. I also wonder if making Robin queer is a reaction to the intense pairing up urges that the show has had leading up to that moment, or if the intense pairing up of uh, seemingly hetero characters was in service of being subverted slightly with Robin. And, while we're on this topic, what do you think Will Byers' deal is? Oh, good question. I... His characterization this season is that he's not being paired up with anyone, and he's lonely, and nobody wants to play his D&D campaign anymore, and Mike and, and Lucas are, are acting like that's, you know, too childish for them, because they have been paired up with girls, and they very pointedly have the scene where Mike exclaims, you know, it, it's not my fault you don't even like girls, and then the show never goes near that again yeah we have we have moved on to other things so i
2: am hopeful about the ambiguity that they left that they'll either keep it ambiguous or i I like that they're doing something other than pairing will off who knows what they'll do with it but yeah it was interesting that will's response to that fight was not to go get a girlfriend because he does not want one and why doesn't he want one we don't know and that's fine. There's a way that that could turn into like real obvious queer baiting. Yes. So like I'm a little cautious about that. But I once again, really beautiful acting from i think it's noah schnapp i think is his name the the actor who plays will really really nicely delivered because like i think mike is like did you really think we were gonna do this forever and was like yeah like and, un- and unapologetically so like he's not embarrassed to be into those things and then i like how they connected that moment to the end when they're deciding what to do with the D D book and will can't will can't imagine having a need for it cuz he doesn't want to play with people who are not his besties from from childhood which is like there's something sweet about that and there's love there like he loves his friends and like does he capital L love his friends tbd um i like the idea of him just being a later bloomer cuz like a bunch of people i know who were nerds of that degree in childhood did not did not become interested in anybody until college
1: That's a common experience. There are lots of people who can kind of identify with that because it's so ambiguous. You know, maybe he's gay, maybe he's ace, maybe he's a late bloomer. There are lots of different ways that it could go.
2: Yes, many different ones. It definitely made a nice sort of breather from the relentless heteronormativity because it was fucking relentless for sure. Yeah. So pivoting back to Robin, sort of connecting to what you were saying before about what is like, what is that story point in service of? Like, I also wonder when they decided to do that to the story. Did they know that when they wrote her? Or did they write her as a love interest for Steve and then change their mind? There's two different ways to think about that. There's the they decided in episode seven that that this was going to happen and then made it happen. And then there's the other one, which is that they knew from the start, but they also were making her a very complex queer character. And that the most important thing about her is not her queerness. So she's. She's spared being tokenized, even though she's the only queer character in the show. It doesn't feel like tokenization because there's many other interesting things about her humanity besides that she happens to like girls. So I like that depiction where queer people are not like their their sexuality is not like floating around on top of their heads as they walk around in the world right like there are other things going on besides who do you who are you attracted to so it actually works either way whether they decided in episode one or in episode seven to make her queer because her her disclosure moment to steve still works it didn't feel completely out of left field it just felt like a response to where steve was taking their you know just trying to take
1: their relationship what do you think about that I think it was a a perfectly respectable decision to have her sexuality be, like, pretty much the last thing we learn about her. Yes! Yes. Great way to put that. Uh, That her characterization is based on the way she relates to Steve, Mm -hmm. and the way that, in retrospect, in hindsight, you can see her jealousy of Steve, and how that kind of turns into camaraderie. Yeah. By the end of the season. And I think it's just that one decision to, to go ahead and make her queer that really, really subverts what would have been a a bunch of stereotypical bunkum. Yeah. And makes the, the same things that would have been stereotypical and boring instead kind of shading in her character. I, I think, in retrospect, that works better than I gave it credit for at the time.
2: Yeah. And one particular thing that I appreciated is that when they're sitting there in their twin bathroom stalls and Steve starts starts this speech that he makes he says this girl I like is not like other girls we learn immediately that he's talking about about Robin and she's listening and as a as someone who's now pretty ardently feminist I have learned that you're not like other girls is not actually a compliment it is it is actually kind of misogynist and kind of like dismissive of femininity and classically feminine things to be like oh well you're not like other silly women you're different than what women are um so I kind of didn't enjoy that although it is a very typical compliment that someone would pay at that age so like teenagers are likely to do this for each other like you're you're exceptional you're not like the rest um you're not a conformist like so like I I wasn't mad at Steve personally for that comment but I did notice it and I kind of you know twicked off of it a little bit. I don't really want to hear that as a compliment for myself or like in general as a compliment offered to women. And you can kind of see her like slightly shifting around and, and it's it's beautifully played by the actress Maya Hawk. But then we circle back around to it where she confirms, Steve, I am not like other girls. And that's so she can lay the groundwork for saying that she that she likes a girl. And she, I, I note with interest that she doesn't actually ever say I'm gay or I'm queer. She, she does it by explaining who she likes, which was sort of a, a less, a more indirect route for that. I like that the not like other girls thing actually had like he correctly identified that she's not like
1: other girls, but it's for a different reason than he thought. Man, it recontextualizes everything because I, I, you just reminded me of of the scene where they're in their bathroom stalls, and she asks him, "Are are you still in love with Nancy Wheeler?" And in retrospect, obviously, she's not asking him because she's interested in him. She's asking him because she needs to get over a girl. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and. Personally, I think most every queer person their age and up to my age and later probably, everyone's got a story about a straight person that they had to get over. Yeah. Because it ain't going to happen and you have to get over it. Yeah. I mean, it hurts when you're that young. Any any sort of heartbreak hurts when, when you're that young. But that's being closeted and, and, and all sorts of other factors going layering on top of it that adds some experience to her character as well
2: yeah and and pain and i like it they give her a ton to do she's a very fine actress i was uh, a little nervous that she is the child of two extremely famous actors but like she she's she's got it i was sold she is yeah she is the daughter of ethan Hawke and uma thurman wow really yeah wow okay See? She's that good. It's not an nepotism thing. No. <laughs> and I especially I enjoyed understanding her face as being genetically connected to their two faces. But yeah, it's it's good. And she she plays great off of Steve. And that I think it's time to shower Steve with some compliments because that actor continues to improve and get better and they write better stuff for Steve. And I, I Steve Steve Time was among my favorite time this series.
1: Oh man, the interplay between Steve and Dustin is always great. The interplay with Steve and Erica was was great. Yes. Steve Harrington Steve Harrington won a fight.
2: Yeah, and it, like, some of his stuff reminded me of, it's reminding me of, us of stuff from the 80s on purpose, but, like, it reminds me of The Breakfast Club, the kids processing their high school roles together, and, like, Steve reflecting on some of the sort of bullshit that comes with popularity, like, kind of helping unpack why he would, like, not talk to Robin during school, but now they were sort of forced together and how maybe they could move past that, and it's, like, this whole other set of rules... And, like, he would have gotten in trouble with some other friend if he talked to someone who was too unpopular compared to him. And, like, just shedding light on that bullshit. And it's all very nicely done by the actor. Uh, Joe Keery, I think his name is. He gets a lot to do. And he is friends with a lot of children. I do have one question, though, which is I do not remember when Steve and Dustin became so close. Is there a thing going on with them in Series 2 that I forgot
1: uh yeah, they they wound up together uh, toward the end of season two. I remember Dustin asked him if he still had the bat with the nails in it. Yeah. Uh, that that was when they were trying to attract the um, demo dogs to the junkyard.
2: Oh, okay. And they got they got close.
1: Yeah, because at the end of season two, uh, Steve told him about the Farrah Fawcett hairspray.
2: Yes, that's right. That's right. Okay. Thank you. That helps a lot. But they are they are adorable together. Like his thing with with Justin is so cute. Solid work from that character. Nice, nice development. I was into it. His sort of listening to her story about liking a girl and his response to it was very nice. And I think not over or underplayed. I think it lined up with his character too, that he was like so far past his stupid popular friends who are so shitty in season one. When they decide they're gonna like punish Nancy for liking Jonathan, that that whole bullshit that happened in series one, like he, he's so far past that. even though he's in the process of currently being rejected, he can keep it together, still listen to the other person, still appreciate everything that he was appreciating about her before. but just like be basically, that's what it looks like to gracefully get friend zoned because like that thing is never gonna leave the realm of friendship. And like you're mm-hmm. still ready to be friends, like that. That's what you should do when a woman does not want to sleep with you. Steve demonstrated it really nice.
1: <laughs> yeah, ab- absolutely. You should be friends with her if she's an awesome person to be friends with.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Um. Oh my God! Imagine telling season one Steve something like that. It'd be spray painted on the nearest building immediately.
2: It would be. Yeah. So he's grown a lot. He really has, and he's able to see that too. And I like I like what he's doing since he didn't get into school taking, you know, taking that job. That's something I didn't do that directly, but I I took some time off in college to work retail to kind of try to get my head on straight and figure out what I wanted. And it it reminded me of that. I worked in a mall, in fact.
1: (laughs) It's also a very Gen X thing to do as well, right?
2: Yes. The journey to get one shit together. Yeah, it is. Yes. So two other pairs that we should probably hit. Yeah, Nancy and Jonathan, and then Dustin and Susie.
1: Who's <laughs> first? Oh, uh, I'm still kind of disappointed that Nancy and Jonathan are together. I, th- I, I, I know think what that for. Was, that was so forced in in season two, and it's still it doesn't really work. I think they don't have chemistry. They really don't. They
2: um, uh, not really. They kind of make it happen a little bit when they're saying goodbye in the finale, like uh, Jonathan has a very nice look on his face saying goodbye to Nancy. But yeah, it just, if it, it feels forced, but I guess it's like, actually they, they may be making a more conscious joke about it than I even gave them credit for when they say that they, they have shared trauma binding them together. And that's kind of it. That might explain it better than anything else, actually. Not that they can't appreciate each other as humans, but like the two of them and the newspaper and the, yeah, like, I I continue to enjoy Nancy, and they make fairly interesting choices for her. But yeah, there was there was some yeah some weird stuff in that relationship. But yeah, and it was forced. I agree.
1: See, I'm I'm wondering now with the whole Byers family moving away at the end of the season, is that relationship over? And how does the show progress? You know, because th- there are a few decisions. That they could make regarding that, it just occurred to me that with the Byers family moving away, it's possible that they could jettison half the cast. It's true, and just follow Joyce and Eleven and and Jonathan and Will to you know wherever the Demogorgon shows up in the next city, yeah. which would be a wild change for the show, but it's possible.
2: Yeah, we've seen shows change venue, like *Weeds* changes states uh, in season five, to interesting, maybe not 100% successful effect. I don't know what they'll do with it, and it's interesting to argue about which set of characters is more interesting. Because like, I would for sure miss Steve and Lucas and Erica,
1: and even Max and um... Oh God, that's 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 right. What am I talking about? You can't get rid of any of the kids.
2: Yeah, I can't get rid of the kids. Yeah. No, 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 no. Interesting. No, no. So Will keeps clutching his neck. So is there still molecules of Demogorgon in there? Still molecules of Mind Flayer? It seems like there is. So then it's going to be like, we'll see what happens.
1: I think it's notable how much Jonathan felt sidelined this season. He was more of, I think, a supporting character in the Nancy plot. Sure, yeah. Which I'm really fine with because I'm not sure what else that's really interesting that you do with that character. Mm -hmm. Like, he had a very definite purpose in season one. Mm -hmm. And then season two, they kind of took the detour to jam him together with Nancy, and now in in season three, he's kind of a little bit more of a a supporting character. So I think that it might be hard to do a lot more that's interesting with him. Mm. And I think it's more interesting to see what Nancy does next. Because someone has to start another town newspaper, right?
2: That's right. There's some problems with the staff at the current newspaper.
1: (laughs) Yeah, there are some staffing difficulties after everyone who runs the newspaper got eaten.
2: Yikes. Yeah.
1: Let's talk about our last romantic pairing uh, that that you want to shout out there. Uh, Dustin and Susie, uh, what do you make of this? Well,
2: I deeply enjoyed that every single thing about that made it seem like my girlfriend is from Canada, fake girlfriend. And then I just so deeply enjoyed that she existed. That was a very pleasant turn. And it's very Dustin. Dustin is so truthful and earnest, but he's also an adolescent boy. And like, I would 100%, like I would 100% understand if he had made up a girlfriend, especially when two of his best friends have girlfriends. Like, I would get it and forgive him for it and understand it as, like, part of the navigation of adolescence. But instead, he comes back and it turns out his loud adoration of Susie has to do with the fact that there is a huge, hugely nerdy girl out there in the world with her ham radio who loves Dustin. And I love it.
1: That was a really well done kind of you catastrophe toward the end when... He finally manages to reach her to get Planck's constant. That was, it, it was, it was very satisfying. It, it was great. And it's another relationship based on the most important thing, science.
2: Yes and I just love that like of course that's the type of girl that Dustin would worship and I, and what's great about Dustin is he is supremely unapologetic about his interests he's never shy about it at all so he's going to tell everyone how great his nerd girlfriend is and their shared nerd interests and it's awesome and like he just he doesn't buy into the idea that nerds should be ashamed of themselves which happens to many nerds that I've known and loved that they're embarrassed or ashamed of some of their interests and Dustin is not and he loves this very nerdy girl unapologetically and she is a she's a hot nerdy girl very nerdy and I love to see her like and she was just right like she she had a cute face so Dustin describes her as like spectacularly beautiful dream woman and then like she looks like many sort of dorky girls including myself of that age and it's just
1: perfect that he would think that she's a perfect girl it's it's lovely it really checks out I hope that they find a way for her to have more of a role going going forward, because that dynamic, I think, would just be great to have in the show.
2: It was, although I would prefer it with slightly less singing. <laughs> I liked that they sang, but they sang for too long. They spent so much time doing it. What the fuck? Although they both can sing, which I know with interest. Just one more comment about Dustin is that like the actor has that um, unusual... Uh, dental deformity. So Dustin does too. And I just like how they're still making it. Like they're just gently normalizing it by like, yeah, I have this thing and that's how I am still into it. And he's, he's such a cutie and he's hilarious. He has great comic timing. So shout out to Galen Matarazzo. I think his name is.
1: Well, as, as we wrap up, I want to shout out one scene that is rife with symbolism and that of course is the kids using their 4th of July fireworks to attack the monster. Oh, okay. There is just so much there, isn't there? <laughs> there
2: is. Yeah, like yes, there's a USA versus Russia tone to it. There's a shades of Independence Day and other monster movies from the 90s thing in it. And it
1: it, it was a nice visual. It was a fantastic visual. It's probably the closest that the show gets to jingoism, even while it's doing a cold War plot. right? Yeah, which I think is interesting because, of course, as as elsewhere in the show, all of the evils eventually get wrapped up in the monster mm-hmm. and and just attacking it with this obvious symbol of America and American celebrations and everything there there is there's a lot there was thank you very much alana for being with me today uh, do you want people to contact you or is there any place you would like to send people on this internet of ours
2: yeah i'm not actively posting on facebook but i you can find me there i'm under alana jane um, so you can for sure use messenger to reach me if you want to talk to me about anything that we discussed, but yeah, I'm kind of like not so much with my other social media presences right now. Um, and cause I
1: usually am a very active player on Facebook, but I'm kind of on a break. That is entirely fair. I've been on a somewhat of a campaign to make my social media streams less intolerable yes and that mostly means following a lot of cat pages mm-hmm so I'm I'm all about that life uh, if anyone would like to reach me I'm on Facebook I am on Twitter Tumblr Instagram under Glenny Bun if you would like to see pictures of my cat you can go find my Instagram I guess. I also write the Wednesday Walk Around the Web, a weekly link roundup of articles and pages that I find uh, intriguing or informative or funny in some way, and I hope you do, too. Find that every Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. sharp at placedomination.com and check out other things on the site and on our podcast feed. Thank you again, Alana, for being here. Thank you, listeners, for being with us. We will see you next time.